morning we were looking at this prayer of Hannah, and I uh, really enjoyed studying this last week or two uh, and this prayer and seeing a lot of things that uh, probably hadn't seen before and just very encouraged as I think of Hannah and this prayer, which expresses a heart of a, a woman who had been in a very difficult place, but God has been pleased to raise her up to enable her to have a son that she has dedicated to the Lord and given him over to the Lord after he had been weaned, no doubt a hard thing for Hannah to leave that little boy. I think of my own grandson. He's going to almost be two years. Uh, so many think that probably Samuel was three. Some say even up to five years of age would not have been uncommon in terms of nursing and feeding a baby and then weaning them. Uh, but whatever the age, three to five, it, it still would be a very, very difficult thing, this son that she has bonded with uh, in those years of weaning, now leaving him there in the temple with Eli, given over to the Lord. Eli's not been such a good father, <laughs> and uh, yet she's leaving little Samuel in his care, and uh, God is going to use him in a mighty way. But here is Hannah as she has done this, and she's now going to go back home without her little boy. But here is this hymn of praise, of thanksgiving to God. She's rejoicing in the Lord. Um, her, her horn has been exalted, and uh, she rejoices in what God has done for her. And she has a very high view of God. Um, here is this woman from the hills, but there's a depth to her and her knowledge of God that she has picked up along the way as her husband has brought them yearly uh, to uh, the tabernacle, uh, seeking to be faithful to the Lord and no doubt evidently learning at home the things from um, what they knew uh, from the Pentateuch, from the writings of Moses about their God. And she has this high view of God that he's holy. There is no one that is like him and that he is, he is a rock uh, for his people. And in the middle of this uh, psalm, we have now Hannah's experience that her situation has been reversed. Um, things have been changed for her. And she recognizes in a general way this is what God is doing in the world. God is one who changes circumstances. He is the sovereign God. So she talks about the bows of the mighty men, they are broken. And verse 4, those who stumble, they're girded with strength. So the mighty are brought down and the, those who are without strength have been lifted up. Verse 5, those who were full, now they've hired themselves out for bread. So there's a change in this situation, the, the hungry now have, been, uh, have ceased to hunger. And then the barren woman, she has born seven. Seven is the number in the Bible of perfection, completeness. But here a barren woman is described as now being bearing and having children in contrast to one that had many chil children now becoming feeble. So a, re a reversal of situations uh, in this um, are, are being suggested in these verses. 
Uh, the Lord is the one who kills, and he's the one that makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he also brings up. And here it seems that she has an understanding of resurrection, that God is the one who kills, but he is also the one that makes alive. She was a barren woman, no life in her, but she was enabled to have life, and God is the one who brings up from the grave. God is one who makes alive seems to have an understanding of, again, the power of God to raise up the dead. Um, The Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. He brings low, and he lifts up. So those who are in the dust, uh, he raises the poor from the dust, lifts the beggar from the ash heap. Remember, Job was on an ash heap. He was cutting himself with pottery and the boils that he had, and covered with ashes, a lowly uh, contrite position, brokenness. And God has raised up the one on the ash heap and uh, to set them among princes to make them inherit the throne of glory. And so here is this, again, this idea that God is the one that changes often circumstances just in general in the world in which we live. And we see with Hannah that she had a very high view of the sovereignty of God. She understood that God was sovereign over the affairs of men. Again, uh, a very uh, spiritually-minded woman. And as we think about that, we see here the providence of God, God's providence in the affairs of this world. God is a sovereign God. He's working all things after the counsel of his own will. And when we think about God's providence, it's how God's sovereignty is exercised in the world. And a question is asked, and we find this in all of the historic confessions of faith about God's providence. What is God's providence? Well, it's God's work of, it's uh, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all creatures and all their actions. And we see that there's this understanding that Hannah has uh, of God, that he's in control and oversees all of these various situations. And so as we think about God's providence, we can think of his providence in creation. Psalm 135 tells us that God is the one that he makes the, the thunder, he makes the lightning for the rain, he brings forth the wind out of his treasuries, So he is one who is sovereign over um, even creation and nature itself. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. He is also sovereign over kings and kingdoms. I think many of us who remember Dick Sauer remember him quoting all the time Psalm 75 that God raises up one king and he sets down another. Raises up one kingdom, sets down another kingdom. And this, again, is what God does. Isaiah 10, I think it says, that God had raised up the Assyrians. They were going to be his instrument to bring judgment against his own people for their sin. But again, the sovereign God of the universe is the one who has brought this about. So he rules over kings and kingdoms. And even the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it whichever way he will. 
even Jesus, when he is before Pilate, and he says, aren't you going to answer me? Aren't you going to say anything? Don't you know the authority that I have over you? And Jesus said, um, are you not speaking to me? Do you not, or Pilate says, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and I have power to release you? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. And therefore, the one who delivered me to you has greater sin. So here's Jesus telling Pilate, you have no authority at all over me unless it had been granted to you by my Father. Now there is mystery when we think about the providence of God and the accountability of men. The Bible is very clear that men are accountable before a holy and a righteous God. But yet God even uses the wicked acts of men to accomplish his own purposes. Um, And so he is the sovereign one over kings and kingdoms. And uh, he is also the one who is sovereign over men. Um, God told Israel that when they would go down to worship, as they would leave their homes and their farms, that he would protect them so that their neighbors would not come in He would work in their hearts so that they wouldn't covet their land and even come in and take their things while they were away. Um, And it is uh, in Proverbs 16, 9, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. We are told that God is at work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then God is also, he is sovereign and providentially ruling over what seems sometimes just to be random things. Random things. The casting of the lot into the lap is the decision is from the Lord. As already mentioned, the sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the Father's will. Um, King Ahab, at the death of King Ahab, now a certain man drew a bow at random... And he struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle for I am wounded. Here's a man that just randomly pulls back his bow, shoots it, and it hits the target that God had intended on this wicked king Ahab. We also see God's providence over Satan and over the powers of darkness. You remember when Satan was speaking before the Lord talking about Job. And he says, well, you know Job's only serving you because you've built a hedge about him and you protected him and uh, he's got a good life. Well, you take those things away and he will curse you. And uh, so the Lord says, you can now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely, and and Satan says, he will surely curse you to your face. Um, so God allowed him to touch, uh, not take his life, but to touch him. And, uh, but Satan was accountable to God and he answered to God and only could do what God would allow him to do. And we see the providence and the sovereignty of God, especially at the cross, don't we? When we think of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter makes it very clear on the day of Pentecost Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man that is attested to you by God, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered up by the, pre, uh, by the predetermined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and you have crucified and you have put to death. You have done this wicked act. You're accountable. But this was according to the predetermined plan of God. It's hard for us to wrap our, our minds around that. But here's God carrying out his purpose, his plan. And then we think of the salvation of his people, that it is God who saves us. It is God who does this. It is God who also preserves and keeps his people and works all things together for them, as Romans 8.28 tells us. This is something that Joseph knew, wasn't it? At the end of uh, all these series of events that happened in Joseph's life, he's able to say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good, to save many people alive. I love those verses, Genesis 15, or 50 and verse 20. And uh, so we see again that God is sovereign God is carrying out his purposes. He's working all things after the counsel of his own will. And it is exercised in providence in the day-to-day things that are happening in our world. And uh, this becomes, even though we do not fully grasp, understand this, it's bigger than our little minds can understand completely, it is a place to rest, to understand this truth. God leads his people to rest and hope in him who does all things well. Listen to these words by Spurgeon. He said, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, And that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all of creation. The kingship of God over all his works, over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. And this is something that, to some degree, that this woman, Hannah, understood uh, as with the knowledge that she had at this point in redemptive history about her God. He's holy, he's good, he's a rock, I rest in him. And then as she writes and prays these things, she understands that this is the God who can change circumstances, can raise up and can bring down And as we think about that, and as we think of God's providential dealings, we need to understand they're not always uniform. God's dealing with dealings in this world are not always uniform, whether it's bringing down the proud and the arrogant or raising up uh, the weak uh, and uh, those who are afflicted. Um, God God works in different ways with his people. Sometimes we 
might read verses like this. And we might say, as we look around us, well, where is God? What about God humbling the proud and exalting the lowly? It may not appear to us that this is happening because sometimes we we look at the proud and the mighty and we see ways that God does break the bow of the mighty and he brings them low. And we can look throughout churches or we can look out through through history and we see ways that God does that. Proud and arrogant leaders that are pompous and have great strength that God humbles them and he brings them low. When I was in Romania, I was taken to the city square in Bucharest uh, where there had been this revolt against Ceausescu who was a horrible dictator and who was brutal to his people and he lived in lavish splendor. Um, But he came to an ignominious end um, and this revolt and uh, um, Andre had taken me through and had kind of explained all the things that happened to him and how he and his wife were then were killed. So here's this mighty man that is brought low. And we, we can think of others. You remember Saddam Hussein, who they finally found him. He's hiding down in a hole in the ground. Um, and he's brought to an end of his rule and his reign and many others. But at the same time, we realize that there are others that don't seem to be brought low. Why isn't God doing that? Why isn't God breaking the bows of the mighty of all men um, because we certainly look around us and we see dictators and we see people who are living very proudly and arrogantly and abusing others and it seems that God has not brought them low um, and so God doesn't always act uniformly in the way that he does with certain people um, But one of the things that I think that we do see is that ultimately God will deal with the hearts of men. He will humble the proud. He will exalt the humble. He will give grace and and exalt the humble. We read of that man there in Luke 12, the parable that Jesus gave. Here's a a man we might say is proud, is arrogant, he's self-confident and what he has done, he's, he's been a successful farmer, and he's very proud of that. He's going to tear down his barns. He's going to build bigger barns, and he's going to say to himself, eat, drink, and be merry, you know. Live the good life. But what does Jesus say about that man? The Lord says to him, you're, you're a fool. This is not the end. <laughs> Just this life that you have here. There is a life that is yet to come, and... Your, your soul is going to be required of you, and then whose will these things be? So this life is not all there is. There is a day of judgment, a day in which God will judge the proud, the arrogant, and they will be humbled. They will be broken. And I often think of Psalm 73, if you want to turn there, it's One of my favorite psalms, it's a psalm of Asaph. And he struggled with this. Lord, why do you allow the wicked to prosper? Why do you allow them to go on in their boastful ways? And they're prospering and they're doing well. 
And he begins the psalm by simply saying, I know that God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart, to the remnant and the believers whose heart are steadfast set upon the Lord. I know that God is good to them. But my feet had almost stumbled, verse 2, and my steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I, I became envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, it seems like there's no trouble in their life, no pangs in their life. Their eyes are bulging out with fatness. They are, they are living the life, a high life. Well, where is God in this? How is God allowing the wicked to so prosper? And we may look at the world around us and say and think the same thing. And then Asaph looks at his own life. And I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm trying to be faithful to him. And my life's full of trouble and hardship and difficulty. And things change in his thinking as he is dealing with this vexing problem as he looks at the world around him. And we see this change. Uh, Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until, notice this, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. And they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind, and I was so foolish and ignorant, and I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you hold me by my right hand, and you will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory whom have I in heaven but you, and besides, and there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. You see, as we look at the prosperity of the wicked, it doesn't seem that God is doing anything. That's not the end of the story. There is a day that is coming. They're in a slippery place, and God will judge They're not to be envied. Just because somebody has a big inning doesn't mean they're going to win the game. There is a day that is appointed and judgment is coming. And Asaph came to understand this as well. So God's dealings, he doesn't always bring down the mighty as we think maybe he should. Um, Sometimes wicked men go to their grave having lived a life in their pride and arrogance and enjoying all of the things that they have. And have not had a thought toward God, but that's not the end. There is a day of judgment and God will judge. And also on the other hand, we don't always see God uniformly working with his people. Hannah was enabled to have a child. There are other women who know infertility and God does not always do this. God does not always hear the prayer and answer their prayer. And, uh, Yet at the same time, that does not mean that God does not give grace to those who are humble. That God doesn't give special enablement and grace to them in the midst of their sorrows and difficulties. 
And uh, he is a God who is giving strength to his people. He exalts the lowly. Think about what God has given to his people as they live in this world. We have been given the spirit of God who lives within us. And Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the spirit that God gives to his people as they trust him. The fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace. And it is patience and it's kindness and it's goodness and it is faithfulness and what's the next one? Self-control is the last one. Faithfulness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. Yeah. These are qualities and blessings that God gives to his people. We've been looking at the Beatitudes on Wednesday. And in those Beatitudes, those who are poor in spirit, who are broken and contrite before the Lord and humble before the Lord, well, theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the confidence, the assurance that they have and that they know. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to be filled. And we look at the world around us and the things that they think are going to satisfy ultimately turn out to be empty cisterns that can hold no water. Many of the proud and arrogant, as they seek these idols, they don't give the return that they are expecting. And you can have the world and everything in it, but it ultimately cannot satisfy. It will not satisfy. But we have been given in Christ the fountain of living water, and this is God's grace and his goodness to us. My peace I give to you. And we have assurance God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And he's working all things together for good to those that love him. Um, I recently watched a video. Um, it's a podcast by Alyssa uh, Childers. And I shared this with the women at the Bible study. Um, Friday, Jackie shared it with them. But I would encourage you to, to watch that. If you go online, it's Alyssa Childers. Um, and she's interviewing Johnny Erickson. And it's entitled, 50 Years of Suffering and Knowing Joy, the Joy of the Lord. And it was just a very, very encouraging podcast as she speaks about the hardships and the difficulties of being a paraplegic. It's a hard life, 50-plus years. And yet she speaks about her overflowing joy that the Lord has given to her, to know him. And it's just an encouragement. Here is one who is certainly humble and going through some very hard and difficult things, but God has given grace and help and joy to her in the midst of her trials. And so he does for his people. He gives grace to them. When John Calvin's wife, Idolette passed away. He wrote to his friend, William Farrell, and he said this, May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction, which would certainly have overcome me had not he, who raises up the prostrate, strengthens the weak, and refreshes the weary, stretched forth his hand from heaven to me. He says, I would have been crushed, but the Lord had again acted in character 
in this time of need. He is the one that lifts up the lowly. He is the one that gives help to the faint-hearted, to the weak and lowly. And so John Calvin knew this. I think of John 21, where Jesus, as telling Peter, Peter, men are going to take you where you do not want to go. They're going to bind you and take you where you do not want to go. And it says that he was speaking to Peter of the way in which he was going to die. And you remember Peter said, okay, well, what about John over there? What about him? Basically, the Lord said to him, don't worry about John. You just follow me. God's ways are not always the same for his people. He deals with his people in different ways. Some barren women, God has enabled them to have children and others not. And, And we can see that in many different ways among the people of God. His dealings are not uniform, but they are designed for the good of each one of us, whatever they may be, that God is at work for our good, for his glory, and uh, to make us to be more like Jesus Christ. Psalm 68:35. the Lord, the God of Israel is he who gives strength and he gives power to his people. I want to close with a quote that was in the bulletin this morning I didn't get to. This is by Dale Davis. And he's talking about how for a Christian, as they go through their life and they go through different trials and difficulties, and God comes along and gives them help. God gives them grace. He turns around their situation. And he says this is just a foretaste of what is yet to come. This is what God is going to do on the grand scale. Let me just read this in closing. The saving help that Yahweh gave Hannah is a foretaste, a scale model demonstration of how Yahweh will do it when he does it in grand style. That's verses 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2. He's going to raise up a king. He guards his people, and he's going to judge his enemies. He's going to do it in grand style. Each one of Christ's flock should ingest this point into his or her thinking. Every time that God lifts you out of the miry bog and he sets your feet upon a rock is a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God, a down payment of the full deliverance, the macro salvation that will be yours at last. True, such tiny salvations are only samples or signs of the final salvation. You should not despise or demean these little salvations Yahweh works in your behalf. These little clues he gives, these clear but small evidences that he leaves, uh, he leaves that he uh, he leaves that he is the king, and that he has the strange way of raising up the poor from the dust and lifting the needy from the ash heap to make them sit in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. Ponder every episode of Yahweh's saving help to you. And it will help you to believe what Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so look back on your own life and see how God has undertaken 
time and time again to sustain you, to help you, to lift you up, to give grace to you. These are just little evidences of what he ultimately will do when he gives to us the kingdom and we receive the fullness of our salvation in Christ. Well, let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. We'll get back to Galatians next.